You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, Episode 3, The British Background. So, last week I gave a brief introduction to the colonies. Today I want to go through a brief history covering the same period, but this time from England, so that we all know where they're coming from. A British interest in colonization really began to take hold during the reign of Queen Elizabeth I. Elizabeth's father, Henry VIII, had been the king who forced England to convert to Protestantism, and this move separated England from mostly Catholic Europe. Henry had broken with the church in order to divorce and remarry. He said his goal was really to sire a male heir and provide for a stable transition to the next generation. Leaving the Catholic Church, however, created massive instability for England for the next two centuries. Many members of the royal family, including several who were in line to inherit the crown, remained Catholics. This led to power struggles. Elizabeth even had her own half-sister, the Catholic Mary Queen of Scots, killed as part of those struggles. The English Protestant Reformation, which Henry began, also led religious radicals, pushing the government even further. They argued that the Anglican Church, the one Henry created, remained too Catholic in its doctrine and practices, and they fought for a purer form of Protestantism, like Luther and Calvin were promoting on the continent. These so-called Puritans would eventually start the English Civil War and would also be a large part of the colonization movement. During the reign of Elizabeth, many British grew wealthy by raiding Spanish treasure galleons. Piracy was probably Britain's largest cash industry at the time, although when the Queen supported it, they called it privateering. Private adventurers would receive letters of mark from the Queen authorizing them to raid and plunder ships belonging to whatever country England was fighting at the time. Seeing literally tons of gold and silver and other valuables that Spain brought back from its American colonies, many British adventurers thought it might not be a bad idea to get their own piece of the action. Spain had done its best to explore, conquer, and colonize as much of the Americas as quickly as it could. But after a century, there were still many hundreds of miles of coast that had only seen the occasional explorer and with no real settlements. Deciding that possession of the land through occupied colonies was the path to riches and power, Britain decided to get into the colony game. Armed with a powerful navy, British colonists spread all over the world. North America was only one destination. Others were the Caribbean, India, Africa, and the Far East. Now, hopes of finding large piles of gold and silver in America did not really work out. Instead, the colonists focused more on cash crops. Setting up colonies was not easy. These were wilderness areas. Colonists had to cut down forests, clear fields, build towns, all in addition to trying to grow their own food. 
let alone the cash crops for investors at home. It could be difficult to convince people to pull up stakes, make an expensive and dangerous sea crossing, only to land in a wilderness where starvation, disease, and Indian attack were common ends. England had to populate America to make colonial claims stick against the other European claims. In addition to offering the promise of cheap land and potential wealth, England found that promises of religious freedom was a good lure for many. Essentially, Britain's long-term strategy was to tell lots of people to go settle in North America and be British. In return for this nominal loyalty, the government mostly left them alone, levied no taxes, and did not enforce much of any restrictions. The British provided military and diplomatic support for colonists, but the main benefit to Britain was the hugely profitable trade in raw materials from its colonies. The fact is that the 1600s and early 1700s were turbulent times in Britain. It had neither the time nor inclination to get deeply involved in colonial affairs. The domestic situation took up far too much of its time and attention. When Queen Elizabeth I died in 1603, she left no heirs. That's a major downside of being the, quote, virgin queen. So the next in line was the son of her deceased cousin, Mary Queen of Scots. James was already King James VI of Scotland, which had not yet united with England. He was also a Protestant, unlike his mother. So when James became King James I of England, he would rule over both England and Scotland as separate countries. Although a Protestant, James was a little too tolerant of Catholics, and this enraged Puritan elements within the nobility. James never got along with the Puritans. James also focused on establishing better relations with Catholic Spain, which did not win him any points with the Puritans either. Like many monarchs, James approved of colonization, but did not give it much attention. He allowed private companies to go set up colonies with his approval, but private investors took all the risks and management headaches. He approved the Virginia Company's settlement of British colonies in Bermuda and Virginia, Jamestown being named in his honor, and although he paid little attention, the Plymouth Colony in modern-day Massachusetts also commenced towards the end of his reign. Following James's death in 1625, his son became King Charles I and ascended to the throne. From the very beginning, though, things did not go well. For starters, Charles married the 15-year-old daughter of the French king. The fact that the 25-year-old Charles was marrying a 15-year-old girl was no scandal. The fact that she was a Catholic was very much so. The king was trying to develop better relations with Catholic France, but this did not sit well at all with the English Puritans. That the king also appointed Catholics to important positions within his administration only worsened things. Parliament refused to grant the new king any money. By tradition, Parliament would set an annual allowance for a new king, and that would allow him to run his government throughout his reign. In this case, when Charles ascended to the throne, the Parliament refused to grant him any allowance at all until the king addressed their grievances. Now, Charles did not want to address their grievances and tried to summon several new parliaments several times, but could not seem to get an agreeable parliament to meet. In the end, though, he ruled 11 years without a parliament. Now, this was pretty tricky, since the government could not raise money without a parliament. Instead, the king had to resort to legal loopholes to raise money. For example, existing law permitted the king to demand ships from his nobles in time of an emergency. If the noble did not have a ship capable of use in naval service, 
he could provide money in lieu of a ship. Now, since the king could define whatever he liked as an emergency without challenge, King Charles simply declared an emergency for no reason and demanded ship money from his nobles. The Puritans grew so frustrated with Charles' rule that they left the country and formed the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Charles was happy to be rid of them and granted them a royal charter to go live with the troublesome pilgrims across the Atlantic in 1630. Charles also granted a royal charter to George Calvert, Lord Baltimore, an influential member of government who inconveniently declared himself a Catholic and was forced to resign from most of his government positions. He eventually thought it best to leave England and received a royal charter to settle the colony of Maryland, named after Charles's Catholic wife, Queen Henrietta Maria. During the same period, other countries took advantage of British neglect. The Swedes set up a colony in what is today Delaware, and the Dutch established a colony in what is now New York. But Charles did not have time to focus on colonies. He had to give his attention to fighting with Parliament. Eventually, those political battles gave way to real military battles in the English Civil War. And eventually, Charles lost his head, literally, to parliamentary forces, and England no longer had a king. Following the Civil War, Oliver Cromwell, a former member of Parliament and leader of the parliamentary army that overthrew and executed King Charles, became Lord Protector of the Realm. He was essentially a king in all but name for about a decade, from 1649 to 1658. He spent most of his time blocking royalist challenges and subduing Ireland. Cromwell mostly ignored North America. A large number of royalists, however, decided to head over to Virginia during the reign of Cromwell, mostly to avoid punishment for opposing him during the Civil War. Cromwell's death in 1658 saw his son take control. A Richard Cromwell never achieved a satisfactory power-sharing arrangement with the army and parliament, and within a year, King Charles II, the son of Charles I, came back to England and overthrew Cromwell and restored the monarchy. Now, before getting into the Restoration Monarchy, I want to talk about parties for a minute. The English Civil War gave birth to two political parties that would dominate English politics for centuries. The Tory party was the political party of the Cavaliers, the Royalists who supported King Charles I during the Civil War and Charles II during the Restoration. The Whig Party was the political child of the Roundheads, the Puritans who supported Cromwell and Parliament against the Kings. Now, the Roundheads got their name from the fact that they wore short, close-cropped hair, making their heads look round compared to the long, flowing manes of the Royalist Cavaliers. One might be tempted to think that starting to wear wigs over that short hair gave rise to the name of the Whig Party, but that is not the case. The term Whig was originally a pejorative term that derived from the Scottish word Whigamore, meaning one who wrangled horses, what we would call today a cowboy. By the time of the English Civil War, the term Whig essentially meant a country bumpkin, not too bright, not too street smart. Members of the new party eventually decided to own this pejorative and take it as their name. The other party's name, Tory, was originally also a pejorative, referring to Irish outlaws, often Catholics who had been forced off their land and into a life of crime. It began to be used in politics as a reference to supporters of the pro-Catholic King James and several of his Catholic descendants. 
Like the Whig Party, the Tories decided to own the term after a time and adopted it as their party name. Okay, now that we all understand Whigs and Tories, let's get back to Charles II. After his restoration to the throne in 1660, Charles II reigned for 25 years. Between his work restoring the authority of the crown, dealing with all those still hostile Puritans, and angry Ireland and Scotland, as well as the Great Plague of 1665 and, hey, let's throw in the Great Fire of London in 1666, he might be forgiven for neglecting the colonies and foreign policy. But Charles actually showed a keener interest in the colonies than most of his predecessors. Part of the reason for that was a war with the Netherlands. England and France united in war against the Netherlands in the late 1660s and 1670s. As part of this war, Charles decided to take New Netherlands colonies and bring them under English control. This assured that the area that is now New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Delaware all came under British authority. In addition, Charles attempted to create the failed Dominion of New England, which I discussed last week. Charles provided a royal charter in 1663 for the colony of Carolina, the name derived from the Latin name for Charles, and he appointed eight lords proprietors to rule the colony, which had already been settled by Virginia colonists moving south for at least a decade. Charles's reign also saw the creation of the Pennsylvania colony in 1682. This was not a royal initiative. William Penn was the son of a British admiral. Early in life, Penn had converted to the Quaker faith, which was outlawed in England. So Penn lived in Ireland for a time and worked with Quakers establishing a colony in New Jersey. After the death of his father, Admiral William Penn, William, who had inherited his father's estate, asked Charles to repay a large debt by providing him with land in America. King Charles granted the request, and Penn set about encouraging colonists to settle there. Before Charles II's plans for a dominion in New England could be implemented, he died in 1685, leaving implementation to his brother, King James II. As we discussed last week, the New Englanders were not happy about this initiative and did just about everything they could to resist. And there likely would have been a real showdown, but for the intervention of other events in England. James II took a decidedly pro-Catholic stance in England. He actually wanted to appoint Catholics to government offices. And this was too much for the Protestant leadership. Resistance to his policies eventually forced James to suspend Parliament and put down a bloody revolt. Years earlier, James's daughter Mary had been married off to the Dutch Prince William of Orange. This marriage helped repair ties with the Netherlands after years of war. Hey, all you Dutch folks, sorry about, you know, taking all your colonies in North America, but hey, would you like my daughter? That makes everything better, right? William of Orange's mother was the daughter of King Charles I, meaning that both William and his new wife Mary were first cousins and both had strong British ties. Parliament decided that James's support for Catholicism disqualified him to continue as king. Mary, therefore, should be the rightful heir to the throne. So, Parliament invited William and Mary to come take control of England. As you might imagine, King James was not terribly happy about this. But he saw that this would not end well for him. He no longer had any political or military support, and rather than attempt a fight, James fled to France, where he would live out the remainder of his life, but at least with his head still firmly attached to his body. Charles decided James's abandonment of the country constituted an abdication of the throne. 
and in 1689, William and Mary took the throne of England in what became known as the Glorious Revolution. Their reign marked the establishment of several fundamental constitutional reforms that made Parliament more powerful than the King. Some were part of the English Bill of Rights, and others were separate legislation. The King could not maintain a standing army without the consent of Parliament. The Mutiny Act required parliamentary approval of armed forces on a yearly basis. The King could not spend any money without Parliament's consent. Parliament also established the Bank of England to manage government finances rather than leaving that authority with the king. The Settlement Act of 1701 prevented the king from going to war without Parliament's approval. The Settlement Act also created separation of powers by preventing members of the House of Commons from holding other public offices. It subjected ministerial appointments to parliamentary approval and Parliament also took control of judges by denying the king the authority to remove them from office. Under the law, now judges had to be impeached by Parliament. Finally, Parliament took authority for determining succession. No person could become king if he was a Catholic or married to a Catholic. This had the immediate effect of nullifying competing claims by King James II's Catholic children. With all the major changes in government during their reign, William and Mary did little to change colonial affairs. They're probably best remembered in America for their 1693 decision to sign a royal charter for William and Mary College in Virginia. A Queen Mary died in 1694, and William followed a few years later in 1702 without leaving any children. The nearest Protestant relative was Mary's sister Anne. So Parliament handed the crown to Queen Anne, who ruled for 12 years. Although married, she never had children herself. Her reign was almost entirely consumed by the War of Spanish Succession, which embroiled all the great powers of Europe in war from 1701 to 1714. Queen Anne died shortly after the Treaty of Utrecht ended that war, and part of the agreement gave Britain control of Gibraltar in southern Spain, as well as Newfoundland, Nova Scotia, and the Hudson Bay territories in what is today Canada. Anne's reign also saw the Act of Union, which formally brought England and Scotland under common rule as a single nation in 1707. Anne also had to contend with a half-brother named James, who claimed the throne. James probably would have become king, but for the fact that he was Catholic. In 1708, James attempted to invade Scotland with the backing of the French, but this was unsuccessful. He remained living in Europe as a continuing threat to the Queen's reign. So with all this going on, Anne paid little attention to the North American colonies. She did, however, make one lasting fashion contribution. Until Anne's death, all judges wore robes of different colors. They started wearing black robes to mourn her death. The black robes stayed and remain to this day. After Anne's death in 1714, there was no immediate heir to the throne, who was not a Catholic. Parliament had to reach quite far before they found King George I. George was an elector of Hanover, a small German state on the continent. He did not speak English, and as far as I can tell, had never been to England. His mother, Sophia, was the granddaughter of King James I, which is how he found his way into the line of succession. But there were actually more than 50 people in line ahead of him, but all of them were either Catholic or married to a Catholic. So King George I arrived in England 
to mixed reviews. Many Tories objected to the idea of a German prince ruling England. But Whigs, afraid of a Catholic monarch, felt this was the only option. George seemed to take little interest in English affairs. After being crowned, he returned home to Hanover, where he spent much of his reign. To the extent George was interested in English politics, it was mostly to use the English military to back his ongoing European disputes. During his absences, a regency council performed royal duties. Since the king did not typically attend the meetings of his ministry, the ministers had to pick a new leader to run things. They instituted a new office called Prime Minister. If the king did not care much about English affairs, he cared even less about the English colonies, which he ignored almost completely. George I ruled from 1714 until his death in 1727. His son, George II, was also born and raised in Hanover in modern-day Germany. He spoke German, married a German wife, and was over 30 years old before it even became clear that his father would become King of England. Also, like his father, he never learned to speak English very well and spent most of his reign far more focused on his rule in Hanover. George II was a little more engaged in English affairs than his father, but that is not saying much. He tended to defer more to his ministers and parliament, and kept the office of prime minister to run things. England embroiled itself in multiple European wars during the reign of George II. The War of Jenkins' Ear merged into the War of Austrian Succession, pitting England against Spain and France in continuing fighting. In 1756, near the end of his reign, England began the Seven Years' War with France. Now we'll discuss this war, also known in America as the French and Indian War, in more detail in future episodes. But aside from the French and Indian War, the American colonies did not get much attention from George II or the Parliament during his reign. Focus was more on Europe. His reign saw the last British colony in North America, though, Georgia, named after the king. James Oglethorpe, a British army officer, had devoted much of his life to helping the poor of London. Oglethorpe believed that many of the poor people would have a much better life in the New World, so he got royal approval to found the colony. Georgia served as a barrier colony between South Carolina and the Spanish in Florida and the French in Louisiana. With the continuing animosity between the English and the French and Spanish, English control of the area between the two provided a strategic benefit. Georgia began as a charter in 1731 to be run by trustees. But the trustees were unable to develop a viable self-government, and it became a royal colony in 1752. Now, George II died in 1760, allowing his grandson, George III, to ascend to the throne. George III's father, Frederick, had been destined to be king. Frederick, however, died before his father, thus leaving the throne to George III. Now, I plan to discuss George III in much more detail in future episodes, since he will be a primary player in the American Revolution. For now, I just want to say that George was an ambitious king. He wanted the king to be much more than a figurehead. George III also ruled over Hanover, like his grandfather and great-grandfather, but unlike them, George III seemed to focus more on England first and Hanover second. Now, I know covering a few centuries of history in these few minutes obviously means that we must leave out a great deal. The key points I want you to remember 
are that we are generally seeing an erosion of royal power and the rise of parliamentary power. We see the development of limits on government and the acceptance of the idea of constitutional rights. Most importantly, with the continuing internal and external distractions in Europe, we see the American colonies largely ignored. They grow and prosper with little direction from the mother country. Next week, I want to give a brief background on specific tensions between France and England leading up to the war period, as well as an introduction to some of the Native American tribes. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.